Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's the Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Uh, the day after uh, the election 2022, what an evening of election results we experienced yesterday evening. Um, I and the uh, rest of the IPR News team up until midnight uh, covering election results as they came in. And as is usual, some races still not decided across the country. Um, in fact, for the second election day in a row, Election night ends without a clear winner. It could be days uh, until a party is projected to win the House of Representatives. Uh, Republicans, it looks like they'll have to claw their way to a majority seat by seat in the U.S. House. Could be a month until we know the same for the Senate. Uh, Fight for the control of the Senate coming down to now three states. Wisconsin, we heard in our news, just called for the incumbent Republican, Ron uh, Johnson. That leaves Nevada, Georgia, and Arizona. Let's welcome our guests this hour on a a tumultuous day after Rachel Caulfield, professor of political science at Drake University. Hi, Rachel. Hi there. Peter Hansen is with us, associate professor in political science at Grinnell College and also director of the Grinnell College National Poll. Peter, great to have you with us. Hi, Ben. It's great to be here. And we want to invite our listeners to to join in with your questions about election results, uh, what they mean for Iowa, for the country. 1-866-780-9100. Or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, before we zoom in on the Iowa races, uh, let's uh, talk about your overall impressions uh, nationwide. Rachel, let's start with you. Even with many races undecided, as uh, I indicated, we've been hearing in our news throughout the morning. Uh, what are your solid takeaways from these election results? You know, over the past couple of months, there's been a lot of talk about you know, a red wave, red tsunami, a, you know, potential blue stalemate. Um, I'm calling it the red moon election. I think you can read a lot of different messages into it, and a lot of people will read it differently. I think some people will find it kind of mystifying. Some will find it exciting. Some will find it beautiful. Uh, it's interesting, but it's not necessarily life-altering. Mm-hmm. Okay. Peter, your impressions overall? Well, you know, I think if you would have looked at this race last spring, uh, you would have uh, probably predicted the the red wave that Rachel mentioned. I mean, the the economy is in trouble. Inflation is high. Joe Biden's approval rating is low. And I think heading into the summer, most folks predicted that there would be really substantial uh, Republican gains uh, in Congress, probably in in governor's races around the country. You know, maybe even uh, an election akin to what we saw in in 1994 when uh, Republicans picked up 54 seats. And we just didn't see that at all. Um, It looks like Republicans will control the House, though probably with a a minimal margin. Um, Odds are that Democrats uh, will hold the Senate, though, as you pointed out, that's that's still in doubt. And Republicans um, may eke out a a one-seat advantage there. Um, but then there was this really robust showing by Democratic governors around the country. We saw Democrats holding seats in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, these these Rust Belt states that will be crucial in 2024. Um, 
And so all of that amounts to, I think, a, a really um, surprising showing of strength by Democrats in a year that we initially said should have looked pretty good for Republicans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, Ben, if Rachel, I can just step ahead, back. Yeah. I mean, I think all of that is true. If we remember that in the post-World War II period, you know, on average, the party that doesn't occupy the White House wins about 26 seats in the House and four seats in the Senate. That clearly mm-hmm. did not happen. Right? <laughs> like, um, we're still waiting, obviously, on the final composition. But Democrats really held back and Republican held back the Republican wave and Republicans underperformed in a lot of these situations. I think one of the takeaways, however, you know, we're hearing that President Biden is expressing vindication. Fifty-five uh, percent of the American public still either, <laughs> you know, disapproves or strongly disapproves of Biden's performance in the White House. This is not vindication. I think this is a combination of a Supreme Court decision that turned the tide and selection of candidates by Republicans who, many of whom are newcomers to the political arena, many of whom kind of are, you know, Trump-supported candidates. So, you know, I'm not sure that the Democrats should see this as a as a resounding success, but certainly it's not a resounding success for Republicans either. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to join us, one 780 9100 one 780 your questions for Rachel Caulfield and Peter Hansen. Well, let's uh, drill down on the Iowa results. Uh, we have some audio from the victors here in Iowa. Iowa certainly uh, the, the not part of holding back the uh, red wave. Uh, uh, if um, the nation would have been like Iowa, I guess it would have been a ra- red wave, <laughs> Peter and, and, and Rachel. Um, the next few minutes we'll hear some um, uh, remarks uh, from uh, the victorious, um, sometimes in, um, all incumbents. Let's listen to uh, Governor Reynolds. Um, she uh, faced Deidre DeGier and uh, Rick Stewart uh, in this election. Um, she was joined on her ticket by Lieutenant Governor Adam Gregg. Um, uh, the recent polls showed her in a double-digit lead, and uh, that uh, did not uh, disappoint uh, the Republican uh, governor. Let's listen to her last night. I am so excited to get back to work and to lay out a bold conservative agenda and to follow through with what we say we're going to do. I can promise you it is going to be an agenda where you keep more of your money, where our schools are thriving and all parents have a choice. Okay, Rachel, your quick comment on the governor's race here. Well, I don't think this is a big surprise to a lot of people. I mean, going in, we saw polls ranging from, you know, Kim Reynolds ahead by, you know, 17 to 22, somewhere in there. Uh, And indeed, she won with a 19-point margin. She, um, you know, I think this was a, a strong campaign on her part. I think a lot of people kind of felt more secure with the economic performance in Iowa as compared to the nation. Um, and so I don't, you know, I don't see this as a big surprise. I think Kim Reynolds didn't do a, a lot to explain what her future agenda was going to be, but obviously she didn't have to. Mm-hmm. Peter Hansen, I want to have you comment on the Senate race. But first of all, let's uh, listen uh, to Senator uh, Grassley now um, being reelected for an eighth term in the Senate. Uh, he faced the Democrat Mike Franken, a retired U.S. Navy admiral. Here are a few of his words from last night. And when I'm 
back in the new Senate. I'll be number one in the Senate. Which, which, which simply means that Iowans going to be number one on my agenda. You've hired me to work for six more years for you, and I take that responsibility to heart, and I promise to work hard for you. Senator Grassley defeating Democratic challenger Michael Franken by the smallest margin of any victory in his uh, re-election bids going back uh, 40 uh, years. Uh, uh, Peter Hansen, um, uh, let's clarify, he says he'll be number one in the Senate. Uh, that is a, a literal statement as well, isn't it? Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I assume he, uh, he's talking about seniority there. It will make him president pro tem of the Senate um, uh, in, in honorary position. Um, and, you know, your, your point that this, this margin in, uh, in this race is smaller than you've seen in the past is an interesting one. I mean, uh, we know from uh, polling when Senator Grassley was first considering running for reelection that there were a lot of Iowans who uh, preferred to see him stand aside to let somebody else uh, stand for that seat. And, and he chose to run again um, and and won. And I would say he, he won easily. It's, it's, it's not a close margin, uh, I think, uh, by by what we would consider to be a close margin in other races, but it's close for him. Um, and I think that probably indicates that uh, the desire of, of a lot of Iowans to to see some change in this seat. But, you know, this is now, I think, a, a very uh, strongly Republican state, you know, uh, I think odds are Republicans have an edge in most races. And and so I think certainly Senator Grassley, with his universal name recognition and seniority um, and the fact that he's Republican, uh, was always likely to win this race. Okay, but let's move to the U.S. House races here in Iowa in the 1st District, that new 1st District in southeast Iowa. The Republican U.S. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks uh, beat um, a strong challenge, I think, from Democrat Christina Bohannon during her victory speech. Uh, Miller Meeks blamed Democratic policies for inflation and pledged to address high prices at grocery stores and gas pumps. We need to once again have energy independence, which will help with all of that. So this is our victory. And the Republicans have a commitment to America, an economy that is strong, once again energy independent, and stop rampant government spending, which will bring down inflation. A nation that is safe. We will support 200,000 local law enforcement officials, regardless of their wacky, crazy policies of cities to defund police. We will secure our border and stop the flow of fentanyl. Okay, uh, Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks there. Rachel, comment on this. Were you surprised at all by the margin here? Um, I think people were under the impression that Christina Bohannon would have a stronger challenge. And looking at the latest uh, totals, 99% of the votes counted, uh, just over 53% of the vote for Miller-Meeks, uh, uh, almost 47% for Bohannon. Yeah, I'm, one of the big questions going into this particular cycle was the degree to which the redrawn congressional districts would matter. And I think they may have mattered in this case. Uh, You know, Christina Bohannon, all of her votes came from a single county. 
And that's not rare in, you know, she, I shouldn't say that. She she only won uh, in a single county uh, in the first congressional district. And, you know, this is in the in the 2020 cycle, of course, Marionette Miller-Meeks won by only six votes. So I think there was some question going into this election as to how, as an incumbent running in a newly drawn congressional district with a fairly strong Democratic challenger, how she would be, you know, perceived by constituents and whether or not she would be able to enlarge her win. She absolutely did. And I don't, again, I don't think that was a huge surprise to a lot of people, although I do think Christina Bohannon was viewed as a a particularly strong uh, contender for the seat. But, um, you know, incumbency advantage is real. And (laughs) and Mm -hmm. so it's not a not a significant surprise when we see incumbents do well. You know, their first re-election campaign is going to be the biggest chance uh, to unseat them. After that, incumbency advantage will become uh, a real uh, you know, a real force in elections going forward. If you've just joined us, Rachel Caulfield, a political scientist at Drake University, Peter Hansen, political scientist at Grinnell College, join our conversation the day after the 2022 election, one 780 9100 Peter, I want to hand you... Um, the Hinson victory, after we hear from um, Representative Hinson, um, this is the second district also facing someone viewed as a strong candidate, Democrat Liz Mathis. This is the second district. Don't get confused. This is the northeast corner of Iowa. Um, and uh, Hinson uh, defeated her challenger, Liz Mathis. Uh, uh, throughout her campaign, Hinson took aim at President Biden, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, saying Democratic control in Washington has led to inflation, higher taxes, rising crime. And those are claims she repeated in her victory speech yesterday. They're telling moms and dads that the government knows better how to raise their kids than they do. That's right. I don't agree with that. Do you? No. They're opening our borders. They're letting criminals back into our streets, defunding our police. The list of failures from Pelosi and Biden goes on and on. But tonight, Iowans sent a clear message. We are not going to stand for this craziness being pushed by Nancy Pelosi and those who are committed to doubling down on the D.C. way. We are doubling down on the Iowa way. Peter Hansen, evidently very effective narratives there. Inflation, higher taxes, rising crime, according to this GOP candidate. You know, you know I, when I look at Hinson's victory, I, I see really what I would normally expect to see in the midterm election. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, uh, the performance of the Republicans in Iowa uh, really looks like what a midterm election would normally look like. That is, incumbents do very well. Uh, challengers have a have a very difficult time, and and tight races break for uh, the party that is in opposition to the president, um, and that's what we saw across the board. So Hinson, who's an incumbent, does very well. She wins fifty four percent, I think, was her her margin, um, and then very close races. I'm thinking of, for example, Tom Miller for Attorney General. Those those break Republican, um, and so really, I, I think it's a, a it's a very sort of understandable pattern that we're seeing here in Iowa. I mean, normally, I think in a year like this, when I would look at a Democratic challenger to someone like Ashley Hinton, I'd say, well, well, good luck. It's going to be a tough race, and I mm-hmm. uh, I think it'll be an uphill climb for you. And, and that's exactly what it was. 
Yeah, and I think about eight points uh, separating, eight percentage points separating Hinson from uh, Mathis there. Well, let's go to the third district. This is in the central and southern part of the state uh, where the Democrat um, U.S. Representative Cindy Axney faced Republican Zach Nunn. Um, I'm not sure if that's been called yet. Uh, Zach Nunn, as of this morning, the race for that district was still too close to call. But the Republican challenger, Zach Nunn, had a slight lead. Uh, If results hold, Nunn would flip this seat, the only Democratic seat uh, held by a Democrat in our congressional delegation. Cindy Axney has held it for two terms, holding off uh, David Young, if you remember, the past two elections. In a speech to Republicans last night, Nunn claimed victory. When we go to D.C., it's about taking what's great about Iowa, The playbooks that we have here of trusting Iowans to make the best decisions for their families, their friends, their farms, and their hometown. As we traveled across all 21 counties repeatedly this election race, we met with so many of you in this audience today. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican, an Independent, or a Democrat. All of our families are facing an economic situation that is harder every day because of policy decisions coming out of Washington, D.C. Team, we have the ability to change that. This district, this race, changes the course of America. Zach Nunn in a victory speech, yet um, Axney has not yet conceded the race. A spokesman told um, our Grant Gerlach, the uh, congresswoman is, quote, waiting until every single vote is counted before she makes a statement. Uh, Rachel, um, I'm looking at the margins here. Very, very closest. This is the closest of our uh, competitive congressional races uh, right now on the IPR website. Uh, 50.3% for Zach Nunn. Cindy Axney, 49.7%. So less than a percentage point separating. 99% of the votes uh, counted. Uh, Rachel, your comment there on, on, on the Democrats losing the, the, their only seat in Congress from Iowa. Yeah, well, we don't know if they've lost it yet, but um, this is an incredibly tight margin, obviously. It's one of the tightest in the country. So within the next few days, as you know, as results from these close races are, are finalized, I expect that this race might get a little bit of national coverage. I think it should have been getting more national coverage from the beginning. I, I think this is one of the most interesting races in the country. Uh, you have a district that includes a kind of smaller urban area, a lot of suburbs, and of course, a good deal of rural communities. Um, You have a district where you have two experienced, strong contenders. You have a district where not a lot of media attention has swayed the narrative. You have a district where we feel like we've seen a lot of campaign ads lately, but compared to other states, the spending has been relatively normal. Um, So in my mind, it's kind of the yeah, the quintessential swing district right now uh, and has a lot to tell us about what's going to happen going forward. I think the fact that you had a strong Republican contender, somebody with experience in government, somebody who has built a name recognition and 
um, has built relationships with donors and relationships within the party. I think that makes a, a big difference here, and particularly when we're talking about incumbency advantage, because this is a case where the incumbent, uh, it looks like the incumbent lost re-election. Um, so those are often explanations for why incumbents do so well as a, kind of a, an advantage in name recognition, money, experience, right? Um, all of those things. You have a you have a challenger here who who brought a lot to the race. Um, so I think a lot of people will read it as quite simply just a shift to to the Republican Party among Iowa as a state, uh, which may in fact prove to be true, but we don't know yet. Um, so it's on every list right now as among the very closest in the country, and we're all watching it. Okay. Join our conversation, one 780 Before our break, let's go to Phil in Cedar Falls. He did dial one 780 Phil, what do you want to chip into our conversation the day after this midterm election? Well, I was wondering, during the uh, primaries, the Democrats ran ads in support of weaker pro-Trump candidates, particularly election deniers across the country. How effective was that strategy? Mm. Peter, can I toss that to you? Phil's question from Cedar Falls. It's a great question, and, and I haven't had a chance to study that carefully other other than note a few headlines on it. It, it does seem that um, Democrats were successful in those races, so um, that'll be my answer. I wish I, I could give a, a more complete one at this point, but uh, that's what I know so far. Mm-hmm. Rachel? Yeah, I, th- I think the early analysis seems to indicate that that was a wise strategy. Um, you know, across the country, for example, in governor's races, if you if you look at the election deniers, right, nine of them, nine Republican election deniers were defeated for state governorships, five won election. Um, but, you know, what that tells us is on the whole, uh, those we you know those candidates who perhaps are within a certain wing of the Republican Party, um, many of whom received support from Democratic groups in order to achieve their primary win and and get their position on the ballot. Um, you know that was a good strategy for Democrats. Uh, we'll see when the final tally comes out and we start looking particularly across the country at Secretary of State's races. Uh, we look at you know some of the the lower level races where Democrats use this strategy and we'll uh, we'll have a better chance to evaluate it. Okay, uh, we'll be back in just a moment with more of this post midterm election day analysis. Um, for the second election in a row, election night ends without a clear winner um, for control of Congress. Could be days until the projected uh, party is projected to win the House of Representatives. That's perhaps expected to be the Republicans, but they have to claw their way to that majority seat by seat. Could be a month until we know the same for the Senate. It's coming down now to Nevada, Georgia, and Arizona. When we come back, we've talked a lot about inflation um, as an effective narrative for the Republicans. I want to ask our guests, uh, Peter and Rachel, about the abortion issue uh, since that ruling back in June by the U.S. Supreme Court. And we had several states with abortion on the ballot. Uh, We'll talk about that when we return and entertain any of the questions that you have. uh, 1-866-780-9100 or email us river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Back in just a moment. 
Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including above and beyond cancer. We're back with more of this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer with Peter Hansen of Grinnell College, Rachel Caulfield of Drake University, our two political scientists, as we begin to pick apart uh, the results of the 2022 midterm election. Of course, some many undecided races. We don't know for sure who will be in control, which party will be in control of the U.S. House and the U.S. Uh, Senate. Um, uh, and uh, and a number of other races across the country. Uh, join our conversation, one eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred. 780 A few comments that have come in by email just to, to read from Dan and Albion, for instance. So disappointed with Miller Meek's divisive acceptance speech where she made threats to launch an investigation into the Afghanistan evacuation. Dan says, not what America needs. Uh, Fred in West Bend uh, says he's an independent voter and is happy with the results of the election because he says, I support divided government. And he adds, hopefully this puts Donald Trump in the rear view mirror. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit later in the hour, uh, but let's uh, talk about what was at the very end of our ballots here in Iowa, the gun amendment. Iowa voters have adopted a proposed amendment to the Iowa Constitution that uh, adds the right to keep and bear arms, adding language that goes beyond the protections contained in the U.S. federal constitution, uh, that Second Amendment. Iowa will be only the fourth state with this strict scrutiny language to protect gun rights in the state constitution. This has been a longtime goal of Republicans in the Iowa State Legislature. Peter, uh, let me hand this to you. Um, thoughts on uh, why voters adopted this amendment by quite a large margin? Well, I I think it has to do with the fact that uh, the, the amendment reads in a pretty straightforward fashion. It you know, reads as uh, protecting gun rights within the Constitution, which is something I think most Iowa uh, voters um, support. And the language on strict scrutiny you mentioned just goes over the heads of most people. I mean, it's, it has a specific legal meaning, and, and, uh, and that meaning is that effectively that uh, gun laws are presumptively unconstitutional unless the government can provide a compelling reason uh, why they're necessary. Um, and that compelling reason, reason might be to, to save lives, for example. Um, but since I, I, I think, you know, most members of the public really um, aren't paying attention to the uh, particular language in question, but really just the issue in general, uh, most people um, seem to think it was straightforward. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about abortion as an issue here. Um... Voters in California, Michigan, uh, Vermont chose to enshrine abortion protections in their state constitutions yesterday. Um, A vote in Kentucky on whether to amend the state constitution to say there was no right to abortion uh, was uh, defeated. Let's listen to a bit of audio there. Uh, Kentucky voters rejecting that proposed amendment. Uh, Such amendment uh, likely would have thwarted efforts to overturn Kentucky's two abortion 
bans. Uh, Rachel Sweet is the campaign manager for the Abortion Rights Coalition, uh, Protect Protect Kentucky Access. She hailed the outcome in Kentucky as a historic win in a victory speech shared by WBRB Media in Kentucky. Not only is this a win against government overreach and government interference in our personal medical decisions, it represents probably the first time that so many organizations across the Commonwealth have come together under a common cause to defeat this type of constitutional amendment and to take back power from politicians for our families, for our communities, for our loved ones. Okay, Rachel, um, what, what do you see on the landscape uh, where uh, abortion issues were addressed across the country? Well, I think, you know, this was, <laughs> this was not supposed to be the central issue of the 2022 midterm elections. Um, you know, in a kind of standard 2022 election model, it would have perhaps come up on the campaign trail every now and then, but it would not have been a central focal issue motivating people's votes. But of course, after the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, a lot a lot of groups came together and kind of made a very central, made this a, a central point, not only of the Democratic platform, but of outreach to voters who otherwise may not participate. We saw the early harbinger of this in Kansas, a deep red state. Nobody expected uh, the outcome in Kansas uh, earlier this year. And then, of course, you know, California and Vermont, I think we would all say, yeah, okay, that fair enough. That's what we thought would happen in California and Vermont. The Michigan, uh, <laughs> People Kentucky. might be a little bit surprised by, by Michigan. I think a lot of people are surprised by Kentucky. Um, mm. And I think it does indicate a, a growing nationwide consensus that this issue is with us and motivates voters and perhaps motivates some voters who otherwise may not come out to vote. As I said earlier, I think, you know, Democrats, to the extent that they can, they can say that that last night, yesterday was a success for them. It's largely dependent on candidate quality on the Republican side, and and a Supreme Court decision. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Peter Hansen, as director of the Grinnell College National Poll, I don't know how often in polling recently you've touched or perhaps plan to touch on it in in the future. Future the uh, issue of abortion. Your thoughts. Uh, well, we've pulled on it uh, several times, and, you know, one clear takeaway is that there is very strong, broad-based support for abortion rights. Uh, and when you ask about, for example, uh, the right to have an abortion within the first 15 weeks of pregnancy, it gets overwhelming support, and, it, and that includes nearly half of Republicans. Um, and that's exactly why we see results like we do in states like Kentucky or Kansas, which are, are dominated by Republicans. And I think this has been something of a wake-up call to the Republican Party. I mean, for, for decades, uh, they could take very hard-line positions against abortion without ever having any uh, likelihood that those would uh, take effect because they'd be blocked by the court. And when suddenly that possibility became real, uh, voters woke up to that. And frankly, I, I think many of them were alarmed and, and it had a, a really powerful mobilizing effect. You know, in our in our last poll, um, mm -hmm. we asked uh, our respondents uh, whether they'd engaged in a whole variety of, of um, election-related activities, everything from giving money to contacting their, their member of Congress to participating in a march. 
And what was really shocking in a midterm election like this one is that Democrats were more mobilized than Republicans. They reported doing more of those activities. And when I uh, continued to analyze the data, opposition to the Dobbs decision and support for abortion rights was a really important factor in explaining that higher level of mobilization. So I think that uh, that the Dobbs decision clearly uh, uh, mobilized Democrats, uh, probably mobilized some independents as well, and narrowed that turnout gap in uh, the midterms to uh, level the playing field and, and give you the kind of democratic performance that you just saw. Mm-hmm. Rachel, what do you think the takeaway is for the GOP in various states across the country on this abortion issue? Uh, will they back off uh, considering the attitudes that Peter uh, just described across the country? Yeah, there's kind of an old adage in politics that you'd rather have the issue than the actual policy outcome. And in this case, I think Mm. Republicans have been campaigning on this issue for so long, as Peter indicated, right? It's been a really powerful motivator on the Republican side. you know, pretty hardline views on on eliminating abortion. And now that they've achieved the outcome, it becomes a much more complicated issue for them because there is a consensus um, across, you know, a significant swath of the American public that they want some, at least some access to abortion services. And so, you know, now the Republicans have to kind of figure out where is their new position on this issue? Is it still going to be complete elimination of abortion? Or are they going to look for some sort of policy compromise that feels more uh, in line with the public's attitudes on the issue? And that's a tricky thing for them to do because those, you know, decades and decades of hardline attitudes on abortion aren't something that can be reversed overnight. Um, so it's it is, I think, going to be a long term question within the Republican base. How are we going to address this issue? Mm-hmm. Um, Kim, one of our listeners uh, asks, um, um, well, really, to put this election in some context, uh, she asks, uh, how did Iowa go unanimously for Obama then become such a red state? Peter, can you answer that question, the transition from um, an Obama um, vote uh in two presidential elections uh, to then uh, switching over to Trump. And, and now we have all of our members of Congress in the next Congress will be Republicans. Yeah, it's a terrific question. And it's one that has really sparked a lot of research by political scientists. And, you know, I think uh, the answer I have found convincing is that, um, you know, the election of Barack Obama um, sparked a slow-moving backlash, particularly by white working-class, non-college-educated voters against the Democratic Party. They started moving um, away from it. Um, And, you know, then a a candidate like Donald Trump came along um, and, um, you know, really, I I think, offered some uh, pretty inflammatory rhetoric that that fed into that movement, that fueled that movement. Um, And, you know, Iowa on average, is an older state. Uh, it's It's got a population that's disproportionately white. It's got a pretty big population of, of non-college educated voters. And this is sort of precisely the demographic that um, started to move away from the Democrats after, um, after Obama was elected and started moving to the Republicans. And, and I just think we're, we're seeing the, con- the continuation of that, that Iowa is just... Um, really moved pretty in a solidly Republican direction, and I, I don't see it going back anytime soon. 
Mm-hmm. A couple and if of I, listeners. Can I, if yeah, I can go jump ahead, Rachel. In on that, I think one of the interesting things that has happened here is as those voters have moved away from the Democratic Party, in many ways, the Democratic Party has moved away from them. Um, there, there's a distrust, I think, among a lot of national level Democratic leaders about the white working class, more rural Midwestern voters. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons, you know, Joe Biden kind of fit the bill to to change some of those you know, particularly labor Democrats across, you know, places like Wisconsin, uh, where they where the they needed those votes to change the outcome of the Electoral College between 2016 and 2020. And it worked. But uh, the national brand of the Democratic Party right now, it really isn't addressing a lot of the issues that these voters find to be most important. And this is one of the reasons when you hear Iowa candidates speak about what they believe in or, you know, the, all all the speeches that we've heard, right, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, about, you know, they, they keep referencing defund the police. They keep referencing you know, <laughs> inflation. They keep referencing increased crime. Um, that's, you know, those are those are issues that resonate with a white working class voter base uh, that is distrustful of the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party is distrustful of them. Um, and so that's going to be a long term dynamic, I think, in terms of how these parties compete across places like Iowa. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and we have a couple of listeners who want you to, to, to drill down with your analysis a little bit on why Iowa seems to be somewhat of an outlier here. This is an email from Jill. Um, are there any explanations why Republicans are doing so much better in Iowa? It, it can't be just inflation, she writes, because it has been this way for a while. Is there something the Democrats are missing about Iowans? Also, why wasn't Deidre DeGere given more press and money? Is that a strategic mistake on behalf of the Democrats? Um, if she had done better, could Cindy Axney have easily won or even other Democrats. And and another anonymous emailer uh, writes, uh, how come Iowa Democrats couldn't take advantage of Dobbs and the state's uh, high court ruling? Uh, Peter, address any of those you'd like. (laughs) Yeah, uh, there's a lot there. And, you know, there's a sort of central theme, which is, you know, what's going on in Iowa? Why aren't Democrats more competitive there? Why are we the anomaly um, in an election where Democrats are otherwise doing pretty well. And, and I actually think Rachel captured it really well, which is that, um, you know, Iowa has a very large population of uh, white working class voters. That's precisely the demographic that Democrats are struggling with right now. Uh, if you look at the Democratic coalition, there's a very large contingent of white college educated voters who have pretty different values. Um, you know, education has become a major dividing line in, in American politics. And, and among college-educated voters, you um, see them, um, you know, uh, standing up for precisely the issues that Rachel, Rachel was talking about, uh, being more more advocacy on things like defund the police or for um, uh, uh, cultural touchstones. Um, and a lot of skepticism among those positions among white working class voters. And I just think it's, it's, it's hard for the party to gain ground here because the mm-hmm. message on the national level is one that is not very attractive um, to, to that group. Okay. And, we, yeah, if yes. I can, again, I'm going to jump mm-hmm. in and, and add to that, only in the sense that I think there are two additional elements from a, from a structural perspective. The first is that the Obama campaign in 2008 did a great job of you know, bringing in a ton of data that they could use to run their election and having a strong national 
candidate and message and what have you. Uh, and they built up a national level organizing um, you know, organizing body to run the Obama campaign. And then they did the same in, in 2012 for re-election. But in the course of doing that, you know, typically the kind of national organizing entity is the party organization and support for state parties. And in 2008, what the Obama campaign did not do, and in 2012, what the Obama campaign did not do, and then after Obama's term in office, what what they did not do is invest in state party organizations. And so I think that you know Democratic state party organizations across the country have really suffered from that over the past generation. Uh, and then you put kind of layer on top of that, where are the Democrats focusing time and energy right now? It's on building and mobilizing a voter base in urban areas because that's the coalition that they see as a successful a successful coalition going forward. Younger voters, people of color, <laughs> right? Those highly educated uh, urban dwellers tend to be the coalition that the Democratic Party is focused on right now. So for state parties like the Iowa Democratic Party, um, that's not where the, the national party's organizing efforts are. That's not where they're putting a lot of time and money and staff and really trying to build up that party organization. And so as a result, I think our state party has really atrophied a bit. Um, and that's nothing against the the actual people who are leading the state party organization. They're hardworking. They're doing the best they can. But we're not seeing a national investment by the Democrats in places like Iowa. Mm -hmm. The final five minutes with Rachel Caulfield and Peter Hansen, our two political analysts uh, today, uh, picking apart uh, yesterday's election and looking to the future. I want to look to the future with both of you because, of course, now with the 2022 midterms in the rearview mirror, uh, very slightly in the rearview mirror, just (laughs) barely, um, let's talk about the Iowa caucuses as we head towards uh, 2023 and 2024. Um, uh, Rachel, what are the um, implications for the caucuses um, uh, here in Iowa, especially for the Democrats, since now we have a solidly red state here? Well, Ben, you know, this is this is a tough topic for me because <laughs> I'm, I'm really afraid that the Democrats are going to move away from places like Iowa and really invest uh, and change the nominating process to invest in different different states precisely because of the dynamic that I was just talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's short-sighted and I think it would be a long-term error. Uh, I think you can see in 2020 the importance of voters like those who live in Iowa, right? It's it's Wisconsin, it's Pennsylvania, it's Ohio. It's all the places Democrats need to win uh, in order to win the Electoral College. So I, um, I fear that the Democrats are going to double down on a, on a different strategy. I fear that means that Iowa will lose its first-in-the-nation status. And then I would also add that even if Iowa retains a position as one of the first five, the changes that have been made in order to make that happen will really change the nature of the caucus itself. Um, and and it won't, it'll be more of a, a party-run primary uh, rather than an in-person voting. Peter, do you agree with that um, dire vision for the Democrats and caucuses here, the long tradition stretching back to the 1970s? I, I, I do think that what Rachel's describing is right. There's going to be a lot of pressure on Democrats to 
um, move away from Iowa for for exactly the reasons she's describing. You know, the one thing I would say, and I, and I, I say this as someone who who admires the caucuses as an institution as a, and as a political junkie who loves them, uh, they're hard to defend um, from a democratic standpoint. And by that, I mean, small d, you know, when you, when you go to the caucuses, they're enormously time consuming. They take place in the evening. If you've got small kids, it's really hard to get there. Um, you know, there are, they're not as accessible to voters as, uh, really, I, I think our, our processes should be. I mean, we, we need to make our uh, candidate selection processes, or rather voting, I should just say, uh, broadly accessible, and I don't think caucuses do a good job of that. And so I am critical of them for that reason, and I would love to see Iowa find a way to just make uh, participation easier um, in, uh, in this process. And, and a quick comment about the Republicans, um, their caucus. Of course, we've seen during this campaign, um, Nikki Haley, um, Senator Tim Scott, um, former Vice President Pence traveling uh, to endorse candidates uh, here. Um, uh, Peter, end with uh, what you see here as this setting the stage for 2024 in the Republican column. Well, you know, the, obviously we've got the big showdown here with uh, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, and we're going to have mm-hmm. to see what happens. Uh, you know, DeSantis had this absolutely commanding win in Florida for his reelection. Uh, I think he won Dade County, which Republicans hadn't won in, in uh, many years. Um, and meanwhile, Trump, I think, really had a pretty bad night. Candidates that he endorsed uh, were defeated, um, you know, and... Um, and so I, I think like the contrast between the two of them right now is really in DeSantis's favor. But Trump has this incredible ability to fire up the Republican base and, and turn them against really anybody who challenges him. Uh, and so it's just going to be, I think, fascinating to see how this dynamic plays out in the coming months, because I think both of them want to be the front runner. Both of them want to run. And it's um, I don't think anybody can predict how that's going to fall out. Okay. Thank you very much. We've run out of time. We'll leave it there. Peter Hansen uh, of Grinnell College. He's director of the Grinnell College National Poll. Also political scientist Rachel Caulfield of Drake University. Rachel and Peter, thank you so much for your analysis this hour. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. Tomorrow we're going to take a welcome, I think for most of us, break from politics and talk about getting better sleep. We hope you'll join us. I'm Ben Kiefer. Take care.